I don't know about you, but I like to feel supported. I like to feel like somebody has my back, my six. Uh, so, somebody is there that I can talk to, listen to what I have to say and not judge me. Um, and that's why I love going to BetterHelp.com. That's right. BetterHelp.com has therapists from all around the world that can help you within the next 48 hours. I don't know if you talk to anybody trying to find a therapist, but it takes a while to, to find one nowadays. Every, everybody's getting, that's right, everybody is getting therapy right now. So don't get left out. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. Enjoy your 10% off now because we go to the gym to get, you know, work on our bodies. We got to go somewhere to work on our mental health. BetterHelp.com is that place. That's where you find your person to share with, to talk to, to feel supported. BetterHelp.com. That's the way to go. B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P. Boom, done. It's a wrap. Your progress can start today. No need to stay stuck any longer. No need to feel alone or ashamed. You can feel loved and supported. Go to betterhelp.com. Now, mind you, it's not a crisis. It's not a crisis hotline. You call 988 or any of those 1-800-273-TALK or any of those phone numbers for that. But you go to BetterHelp.com where you want to find somebody who can go on a journey with you, who can listen to you and guide you and help you get unstuck and achieve your goals. BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. Enjoy your 10% off now. What's up, my guy? What's up, brother? How you doing, man? <laughs> doing well, man. I swear, I think one of the, uh, I was watching some of your, your, I guess it was TikTok videos. And I was like, man, Pfizer needs to get in touch with you. Your voice is so goddamn soothing. <laughs> Forget about volume sales. Just listen to Leo for a little bit. You'll be like, everything's fine. We're good. Yeah, I, I think I'm definitely leaving some money on the table. For sure. <laughs> You're the umpteenth person to talk yeah. about. I almost it, feel work. like I should be doing like a, a bedtime story podcast or something. <laughs> And the waves were crashing in the yeah. beautiful ways. <laughs> you, you know, what's funny, though, is anytime I, I try to, like, speak with my voice, I feel like uh, it, it sounds unnatural. Yeah. You know, I when, I, when, I, when I think about it, it, yeah. it changes the pitch a little bit. Oh, yeah. They used to do that. It's in, it, it, it happens to me sometimes, too, because people will be like, man, you got a great voice for radio, blah, blah, blah. As soon as I do that, I'm like, well, morning time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, I start I started trying to do what I think the voice should sound like instead of recognizing yeah. I already have the voice. Was, <laughs> um, Dave, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Um, because you're you're one of those people, you know. This is a mental health podcast, and mm -hmm. a lot of people are struggling with different things. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of times when we see other people succeeding or thriving, we tend to think that they are just thriving and succeeding in all areas of their life, that they don't have any struggles or challenges, and, and neither have they been through any struggles or challenges. And, you know, right now you're killing it with your ice cream business. Thank you. Um, I've, I've, who? Oh, I saw you in uh with Hassan. No, not Hassan. Uh, Jimmy O Yang. Yeah. Yeah, Jimmy O Yang. Yep. 
and uh, you know, just looking at the posts and the different flavors, and I could feel the excitement that you have behind that. But oh, yeah. um, how old are you now? Forty nine. Forty nine. And so, Dave, what would you say has been the biggest challenge in your life up to this point? Well, it's a funny thing that we mentioned this. So I would say one of the larger ones that I've had has been living with depression for as long as I have, high anxiety. Um, those were some of the long-term, probably most difficult things to deal with. Um, so kind of touching exactly on what you were talking about. Um when I was much younger, not going into the whole origin story here, but um, I got diagnosed as having dyslexia when I was in 10th grade. So that gave me, you know, coming from uh, kind of my generation, you know, tough love was kind of a thing. And they didn't really have a lot of the, um, uh, what's the word I want to, the standards in place to be able to check a lot of these things. So I had that stigma of, oh, he's just lazy. He doesn't want to do this. He wants to talk. He doesn't want to listen. You know, all these different things um, going on for years. So I always thought that I was less of a person from what I was hearing from those that were supposed to be judging me, or uh, in this case, as teachers. So that was something that I've had to live with for a long, long time and was on meds for a while. Not, you know, nothing. Uh, I was on Zoloft and all that kind of fun stuff for a long, long time. And eventually just decided I didn't want to be dependent upon, you know, my happiness coming in the form of a, you know, <laughs> half inch pill. Um, so I had to kind of find out ways to really dive deep into myself and learn what's going on and what can I do to make things better for it. Um, so now I'm happy to say I'm kind of over the depression side of things, but, uh, Instead, I've picked up anxiety. So I didn't want to leave the void. So describe for us what depression felt like for you. Uh, was Oof. this like going a week without showering? Were you in bed for months? Like what, what was the what, when you were in the deepest throes of depression? So for me, it was just not wanting to get out of bed. Um, just, you know, things are rough. I'd rather just stay here and just kind of ride out the storm. Um, so I would have these nothing, you know, nothing months on end, nothing shower and nothing like that. Um, but I would just be really lethargic, really didn't want to do anything and was kind of happy doing nothing to get out of, you know, you know, you know, you need to do something, but I wasn't sure what it was I needed to do. So I just figured, you know what, I'm just going to sit here until I feel better. And sometimes I would go on for a couple of days. Um, but yeah, I guess the easiest way to describe it is it's like, I don't have one of these, but I've heard it's very comforting, but it's like carrying around one of those weighted blankets, but it's on your shoulder during all moments. So you just slowly start to feel your body kind of just crush under the pressure. And, uh, but it's not a fast thing. You know, it's one of those things you just kind of go, yeah, today I'm just feeling, I don't feel like doing anything. You know, I feel like there's a dark cloud over me and no matter what I can do, it's just impending negativity. Yeah, that that idea of no matter what I do is just impending negativity, like things are going to get worse, right? It's almost, mm -hmm. it speaks to a hopelessness and a despair. Was this something that you saw in your parents or, uh, or no. something in your family? No, no, I didn't really recognize it at all. It just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and, you know, generally, you know, outside of the world, you know, outside of 
when you're alone by yourself and in the public world, I'm, I'm a very positive person. Don't get me wrong. I'm East coast and I can be a bit of an asshole sometimes, but, uh, in general, I'm, you know, I'm a positive person. So it was kind of like, you know, you almost feel like you're wearing a mask sometimes. I've heard a lot of other people say this where it's like in public, I don't, you know, one of my greatest fears is to look foolish in public. <laughs> like <laughs> as a comic, I don't know how I've gotten along as long as I have, but that's one of my greatest fears. And when you're feeling depression, you feel like you're wearing, you know, you feel like you're faking yourself. So that's another, you know, kind of slip and slide that you can fall onto um, to really get that way. But yeah, in terms of my family, no, I haven't really noticed. Uh, I, I, I think I might be the only one that's dealing with it. Well, you know, it's also remarkable, though, that at, at a young age and at that stage that you even went to go see a, a therapist and then were put mm -hmm. on Zoloft. Mm -hmm. uh, was there any therapy involved before they, you know, slipped you the old happy pill? Yeah. So when I was younger, I was in therapy um, because I got, you know, from the dyslexia, I got held back in fourth grade and I went to like one of the better schools in the city, in the, in the state. Um, so it didn't quite match up as to what was going on. So, um, therapy has been part of my life for a very, very, very long time. Um, so because I was going to get held back, they wanted to deal with any of the psychological issues that might have happened. It never even came up at that point in time. It was just, oh, you know, he has some difficulty dealing with this. Um, you know, oh, he has a negative self-image of himself. So, you know, therapy had been around a long time, so I wasn't really opposed to it. But it also made me a little aware of like, sometimes that shit doesn't work out right. And uh, so it was very difficult for me to find a therapist that I could actually have uh, more trust into. Being as though I was so used to having to kind of put up a, uh, a wall of words, basically, and I would just talk and talk and talk so you wouldn't think that I was something else. You know, in this case, depressed or, you know, couldn't read the book that I was prescribed, or, you know, that I was that was the homework or whatever. So I learned to just talk away. So it took me a while to find somebody that I could actually felt like I didn't need to kind of put up this wall of words to be able to listen to. So yeah, I, I got into therapy with that and eventually was prescribed it. And, uh, and it really was, was very, very helpful. Wall of words. Wow. So many people come to mind and, and <laughs> that I know right now is like, wow, that's exactly what they do. And even for myself in my therapy sessions, I noticed that there are times where I'm putting up a wall of words. Um, and, and then at some point it gets really quiet. And then what I really am feeling finally, you know, uh, expresses itself. The, in terms of the therapy and mm -hmm. that you've been through, were there any practical things that have helped you to work your way through the depression? Um, yeah, you, you gotta, stagnancy does not lead to more health. Um, so if you're feeling bad, do what you can do. Is that a matter of, you know, just do what you got to do to get out of bed, go walk around the block, um, do something because sitting there is just going to allow your brain to continue eating itself. And that's part of the problem with depression is that, you know, it's this swirling circle of, you know, negativity, you know, Oh, I can't do this. I don't want to do that. This would hurt if I did that. So just do something. That's the biggest one. It doesn't have to be anything major. Uh, matter of fact, don't make it something major. Some, make it something minor so that it's easy to accomplish. And once you kind of start the, the path of putting one foot in front of the other, 
you know, eventually you're going to get up and you're going to walk and then you're going to do something. Just the fresh air alone could help you out. So break the pattern is probably the biggest one. You're absolutely right. I've made it, um, <laughs> I made it a point in the morning to take a shower when I first wake up because mm -hmm. I recognize that there have been times where I've gone a week without showering. Yeah. And I never want to fall back into that pattern. Mm -hmm. So I've decided to make it a habit of taking the shower when I first wake up in the morning so that, because there'd be, <laughs> it's embarrassing, but there'd be times where like I hug Michelle and I'm like, Oh damn! I ain't even showered. She's catching <laughs> all of this heat right now. Because <laughs> you know her, her she, she, her, you know her face is like right in the armpit. You yeah. know, like because yeah. <laughs> of the oh, height yeah. difference. And I was like, oh no, that's not cool at all, Leo. You got to yeah. shower first thing in the morning. Yeah. Uh, yeah so because, have you found that to be your your you know if you start that routine, does that now become the if I don't do this, something else won't happen? Uh, not always, but what I've discovered is that because I also go through kind of like slightly manic episodes, so okay. where I'll go, well, I don't need to shout, like, you know, I just have all this energy, mm -hmm. but what I realize is that habits are more important than mood, right? So mm -hmm. if I can build up a habit that's strong enough, then I can override a mood, right? So yep. I try to get up pray, meditate, take a shower, brush my teeth, like all that hygiene stuff. Just get it out yeah. the way. Because I, <laughs> I could I could very easily just not shower. Like when Michelle goes on trips, yeah. uh, I could I could easily not shower, open the blinds, leave the house, <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh, I get so, it. So, you know, now we have a dog and, and that dog kind of, uh, you know, helps us, to, you know, keeps us on yeah. our toes. Yeah, you literally have to pick up shit if you don't have to deal, you know. You can either deal with it preemptively or post it. So That's right. You, you know what the choice is on one side, so you might as well make an option on the other. <laughs> well, you talked about depression is, you know, feeling like a weighted blanket, like you're wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. um, you know, lethargic, not wanting to get out of bed, um, and just being happy doing nothing to mm -hmm. some extent, right? So how does that different than the anxiety now that you're feeling? The anxiety is now, uh, it's a different beast in that when I'm depressed, I'm kind of low energy. And when I'm anxiety, I'm the exact polar opposite. I'm very high energy, but I am uh, more fear-based on what I'm doing. So for instance, I'm, a, I'm eager to go outside. I'm afraid, to, do I go left or do I go right? You know, uh, I don't have a problem getting out and walking, but... How long am I going to walk for? Where am I going to go? What's this going to end up to? So it's this fear of the unknown that, or more so, it's the fear of making the wrong choice. When in reality, most times, it's about making the choice more so than it is about the action that it creates. So Tell another me more about that. Well, uh, it's kind of like if you were to anxiety is kind of like if you got in your car, you turned it on, the motor's running, but you're very happy just revving the motor, but you're not going to leave anywhere. You're just going to sit in your car. And so you've done all the actions, but you're afraid to take that next step of where does this go to motion? So I, I don't know if that fully answers it, but 
it's more like uh, you're revved up to do things, but you're just so caught up in the choice and the decision and the ramifications of it. So I think it has something to do with, um, I think it has something to do with levels of control. When I feel like I'm out of control, then I have a harder time making decisions. So I try to control whatever it is that I'm doing. Like for instance, when I was up in Hollywood, before I left, I fell into like a deep pit of depression. And it turns out it was, I also suffered from Lyme disease uh, or survived Lyme disease a couple of times. So when that happens, I, you know, usually go into, uh, well, it's happened twice. So I can't say usually, but both times it's happened has ended up in some kind of deep depression. Um, so, um, shit kind of lost the rabbit on that one. Yeah. So what happens is, you know, you, I felt like I wasn't able to control anything. So I started gardening. So I started a collection of, uh, of succulents. And it turns out that was my way of going, well, I can control this environment and therefore I'm comfortable within it because the options are something that I don't have to fear because I know what happens if I don't water it or if I don't nurture this thing, then it's going to die. So it gave me more purpose as well. Uh, you know, that that's interesting because there's definitely been times I think about where I've gotten ready to go out to a club or a party and then just plopped on my bed and mm -hmm. like ate uh, like a bucket of ice cream and <laughs> like watch Netflix, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's like, like it's that. And, and just yesterday I was sitting in my car for a while. Like I, I didn't want to go anywhere, but I didn't want to be in a house, but it was too hot to be outside. So I just kind of sat in the car and then I was like, let me go wash the car. Like, you know, but it was that kind of anxious spiraling. Yeah. of revving up to do a thing but not really committing to anything so yeah i completely and i can see that even in in relationships oh, yeah. where you know people who they get in these relationships and it it you're like you, are you too married like it just like they live together they're sharing all the bills but they but they you know one person doesn't make the the next jump you know like they've mm -hmm. done all these things to prepare and to be marriage like but then um you know, never following through. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a powerful, but so control mm -hmm. and starting a garden. How did you come up with that? Like, did, were, were you aware of that or is that something that you just realized? No. It, uh, no, I wasn't aware of it at all. And it, it became an addiction of, of, of sort um, in the weirdest way possible. So Basically, what happened is I was, you know, living up in Hollywood and going out and drinking all the time and doing a bunch of depressants, which for some reason or another, when you're depressed, it's like, yeah, let me go drink away my problems. Like, no, you just added fuel to your depression. You didn't do anything to help yourself. So I said, you know what? I'm going out and I'm wasting all this money. I want to buy something that's going to last longer than the, you know, than the 10 minutes it's going to take me to drink this beer. So I happened to be walking by a garden shop. And they had succulents there. Now, I had tried with other plants, and I wasn't really great with them. But these succulents are supposed to be hard to kill. So I was like, perfect. Let me get into this. So I, I just spent the eight bucks that I would have spent on a beer, and I went in and bought a plant. Now, before I would moved up to Hollywood, one of my friends had moved away from uh, Ocean Beach, uh, San Diego, and uh, left me some succulents. So I had this mini garden already. Didn't really know what to do with it. Was just bringing it with me because my friend gave it to me. Why not? They look kind of cool. So then it became this, okay, well, if 
for every kind of like time where I would want to celebrate by drinking, I decided, well, I'm going to go buy a succulent instead. So I went from, you know, I had five and then I added one that became six. And then, oh, look, I had something else positive happen. I'm going to go back to this place. So it became this habit of reward yourself, but not with the beer, with the succulent plant. So I ended up getting like 75 succulent plants at one point. And they were, yeah, like it became this thing. And of course, I had to get all the exotic ones because it started becoming like Pokemon for me. I couldn't, I had to catch them all. So you have 75 succulents. And, and I understand that because I had, you know, during the pandemic started a garden myself and it was, I was growing chocolate mint and then it mm-hmm. just grew out of control. Like this one thing that I was doing to feel some control grew out of, I, I didn't know how much chocolate mint can just, uh, oh, yeah, it's try a to weed. take, yeah, yeah. They try to take over everything, but it yeah. tasted great. We were making like chocolate mint ice cream and, um, <laughs> um uh, what else we put it in our teas yeah it was it was wonderful and just giving it away to neighbors yeah the uh so you know th- this thing that you go into to feel some control k- kind of uh spirals out of control right mm-hmm. it's 75 succulents um so what what do you do from there do you give some away are you are you still taking care of these succulents no Where i still got like the succulents i still got like 50 of them um because I really like them now, but it's not, you know, I don't go out and buying them all the time. Um, You know, it was one of those things like, I guess what happened was, to be fair, I started off with the small shelf. And as most humans do, if there's a space to be filled, well, at least most Americans, I should say. (laughs) I don't think this is in every culture, but it sure as hell is in ours. Uh, If there's a space to fill, well, then, oh, well, I should probably fill it. So I ended up filling up this whole space. Well, then one of my neighbors left and they left me this huge uh, bookshelf. Uh, Like it was like six feet long, about maybe six feet uh, high. And I was like, well, shit, I'll just space them out. It looked real nice. And then, of course, my brain was like, nah, there's space. Let's go get another one. We could put one here. So I filled up all that space. I had no intention of doing anything other than like, oh, shit, now I've got a bunch of these things, which subsequently I didn't know anything about. So there was like, different types of succulents you know there's ones that do winter time there's ones that go to sleep uh and and you know reawaken after a period of time uh so i had no idea what i was doing so i was basically just a mass murderer of succulents for the longest time and uh eventually after you know some years a lot of them died away and i said you know what maybe you don't replace that one (laughs) so i whittled it down i think i'm down to like i don't know 40 or 50 right now and uh you know, the 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 control over it isn't so much there anymore because I'm just so damn busy. So now it's just a matter of like, hey, man, do what you can to just not kill these damn things. Like, just show them some love. Get, you know, go out and take a look on them every once in a while. Uh, and, you know, the thing with succulents that's kind of fun is they do things. So it's not just like a plant where, you know, oh, look, it's a little bit bigger. Like, it'll have flowers. It'll, so it does shit. So if you keep it alive, there's a there's a reward for it for you. You know, you you, brought, you mentioned something that's quite interesting in that I and it's something I recognize in myself and because you talked about, you know, it became an addiction and, and addicts where we kind of overcorrect in a direction, right? Where we think that um, we have to give it so much love, more love than it needs. Oh, you need a cup of water. I bet you a gallon of water is better. Mm-hmm. You need a little sun. 
uh, you know, we're going to give you all the sun yep. in the world. And, and so the kind of that, that place of moderation and also that place of like listening to the plant, the plant is like, yo, I only need a cup, but we mm-hmm. think that we know better than the plant. Mm-hmm. Or we know better than our bodies or better than, you know, even in relationships, we'll see this where your partner is telling you like what they need and what they want. And we go, well, if you want two, then you probably want four. And then right. you want credit for that extra two. And it's like, well, I only asked you for two and I only needed two. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Do you find that in relationships? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And that's one of the funny things that I think, you know, until you had mentioned it, I, it really didn't even click. But right now it's like, oh, yeah, that's what these succulents taught me is that your best plans are not necessarily the best plans of what, you know, are they for you or are they for this thing? So, yeah, I think in relationships, I think, and I wouldn't be willing to wager that most men probably do this more so than women. And this isn't a, a gender thing in any way, shape or form, but we're like, you know, oh, well, if you, like you said, oh, you like two, well, let me get you four. Cause you know, look at me, you know, if, if two is good, four is great. Right. So let me just overkill it. And, you know, just like in succulents, you know, if you overwater it, you don't pay attention it dies. If you put it in the sun too much, it melts. So, you know, you have to start to learn what is the appropriate amount to the situation versus what is my reaction to what I feel needs to be reacted to. You talked earlier, Dave, about it being an addiction. Was alcohol kind of an addiction for you or were there other addictions that you struggled with? No, it, I, I was never. Um, I was a binge drinker, so I wasn't really. Um, I was never like I would drink to excess, um, but I was never one of those people where like I could go weeks without having a drink, not even think about it. But if I have two drinks, well, then I got to have seven. So that was where I knew myself to be into that. And in some way, shape or form, that probably started at a much earlier age because coming where I grew up in Delaware, we didn't have shit to do. So you started drinking at a very young age. And I think this is something that a lot of people fall into, which is like, oh, I'm going to handle this dangerous situation um, and show people how cool I am with it. So drinking was a big part of growing up. So I would always try to, you know, cause I was a smaller person, uh, still am to this day, but then I was like 110 pounds. So I try to out drink the big guys because that's me showing my manliness where instead it was really showing my stupidity, <laughs> you know, in a, in a very public forum, which is as stated earlier, one of my greatest fears. So, uh, you know, it was a, a, a complete, Oh wait, that's the wrong term. So, yeah, I never really had addiction to that. If there was anything that I would say that I was probably addicted to more so than anything else would probably be weed and cannabis because uh, wow. it slows down my brain. So that's one of the things that with anxiety, your brain is constantly going. Um, whether you want it to or not, there's really not a lot of calm that's happening. It's just there's always a gear turning. So for me, when I smoke weed or, or take an edible or whatever, usually it's just smoking weed, uh, it slows my brain down so that now I'm kind of like, okay, now I can kind of deal with it a little bit better. Yeah, growing up in Delaware, I, I, I can't imagine what that was like. It, it either, I could see it being very cool because Delaware may be up in the mountains somewhere hunting, 
fishing. Oh, no, no, that kind no, of thing. no. Or it's like small town trailer park, like, you know, no, just bored. I, what, what was yeah. it like for you? Nah, so I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. So that was like, uh, so I grew up near a city in the suburbs, basically. And uh, the city itself was was a pretty dangerous place. It had either like extreme wealth in the state uh, on the outskirts. And then the city itself was kind of run down and, and uh, it, was, it was pretty dangerous. It's kind of like a mini Baltimore, if you think. Um, so it really wasn't, yeah, everybody, it's funny when I say Delaware, people initially go, well, what was it like living on a farm? I'm like, I don't know, man, but like, I, you know, I got friends that got shot at and, you know, I almost got carjacked a couple times before they called it carjacking. So if you want to talk about that, I can talk on that one a little bit. So I had this weird, uh, I was kind of in, I was kind of like the Ferris Bueller for my school. So I, I fit into all the different categories. Like my parents came uh my mom's side of the family came from money my dad's side didn't so i had the best of both worlds like i was exposed to everything that was great went to great schools but i also had to like make sure my chores were done mow the lawn you know um you know paint the you know paint the fence i had to, i had to work in other words too so i wasn't just able to just sit back and be a rich kid even though i, I went to school with a bunch of those rich kids i didn't live that life i just got to live in that life um so that was early on. I got to do like all the really, really great things. And then later on in my life, I switched over and went to a public school where I was like kind of really exposed to like what real life was like in Delaware. So, you know, there we had, you know, 16 year old girls being pregnant. And this was back in the 80s, you know, late 80s, early 90s. So that wasn't a thing. Um, you know, we had riots in school. <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember like I remember vividly seeing this giant block of butter getting thrown across the room with a knife in it. Uh, the knife wasn't from anything other than the slab on the butter, but the picture is, you know, it wasn't this, uh, wholesome existence that people think Delaware may be. That's so funny. We had riots in the school. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you talked about, you know, Delaware being dangerous and, and I, and, uh, and how your mind keeps going. I imagine that uh, a part of it also is this feeling of like, am I safe? And is, is there, and what's the threat level in a lot of situations, even if like, I live in San Diego, yeah. uh, very, you know, nice place, but, yeah. um, but because I grew up in uh, the city of Chicago where there's, uh, you know, there's always people yeah. and noise, quiet makes me feel less safe than I need a bit of commotion, not chaos, but yeah. I'm more comfortable with commotion. Uh, yeah. Do you find that? So I grew up in the suburbs. So I was used to, you know, I was used to growing up with crickets and, you know, and that kind of thing. But as I kind of got older with stuff, you know, you start to recognize a little bit more about where you are in your environment. I'm like you. I, I feel if it's dead quiet, I'm kind of nervous because then that means that I have to listen to my brain. And I've been doing everything I can to make sure that that's dulled down a little bit, you know, not a lot, but just a little bit. So, yeah, I noticed, like, for instance, when I left Hollywood and moved up to my parents' place, uh, you know, in one day, I went from being 4,000 people on my block to 4,000 people in the town. So that's where I kind of had it was like a real eye opening, like, oh, shit. Yeah, this is a little crazy. Um so I kind of learned, and even now, like I live near a busy road, 
I feel more comfortable being near the busy road because I can hear the noises a little bit when it gets too quiet. Um, you know, then I'm kind of like, okay, what's going on? Why? I haven't heard anything for a while. I can see all the stars. Okay. That's real cool. But now I got to deal with, okay, what's in the dark, (laughs) you know, and that kind of thing. But growing up from like Delaware area, um, you know, again, I grew up in like a, you know, in in, in the suburbs where things weren't all that bad, but you hung out with people and you went to areas where it wasn't like that. So you become very attuned to listening to what's around you for security purposes. So, you know, when you hear a screeching tire, you know, okay, you know, let me, let me be on alert right now. And even to this day, that wasn't like what I grew up with, but that was what I ended up kind of being in. So to this day, I still, I'm, I'm looking around the corner. Let me see what's going on. Even though, cause I live in San Diego too. I mean, my biggest fear, you know, <laughs> I don't have really any of those fears around here. You know what I mean? There's not, <laughs> you know, screeching car here is cause I'm near a military base. The, so, you know, after high school, mm-hmm. uh, do you go to college and what do you major in? Yeah, I went to, uh, I went to school for six and a half years and never graduated. So I, <laughs> I made a lot of, uh, a long series of bad uh, decisions when it comes to my education. So I was a professional actor when I was a kid, which gave me a lot of the uh, skills and abilities to cover up what was my dyslexia. So that was one of the problems uh, with my learning disability is that I learned not how to deal with it, but how to cope with it and make other people not know it. So that lended itself to some difficulties because why can't he read if he can read a script? Uh, so. Um, So, yeah, I don't I don't know. Oh, oh, Dave, you just mentioned something that uh, I never noticed a distinct uh, that needs to be distinguished. You said I learned how to uh, cope with it versus deal with it. What how are you distinguishing those two? Well, when you don't know what you're dealing with, um, you can't really build anything to help you get out of that situation or to heal that situation. So what you're doing is just going, you know, it's kind of like. it's kind of like if your leg hurts, you learn how to limp, right? Uh, and then if you don't want to show off that limp, you learn how to walk a different way so you're not showing somebody your weakness. Um, so in life, I had learned that if I wasn't able to visually read um, and I learned auditory, that if I could engage people into conversation, that they would no longer look at the fact that I couldn't read the thing because it seemed like I must have from my verbal engagement. Wow. And, and so were you like listening to audio books? Like how were you in? Yeah, they your, were. The, yeah, your, they were the worst. They Really? I hated them. Well, when I got diagnosed with dyslexia, uh, you know, keep in mind, this was the 1990 or 89, actually. So. They didn't really know what learning disabilities were. They didn't know that most times learning disabilities are attached to some level of, um, of uh, you know, mental issue as well, um, mental health. So uh, what they did at that point in time was give me books on tape, but they were for the blind. So I had to get this like special old school. Uh, remember like the when you had cassette tapes? And it was like the original one that you got that was like bigger than a VCR tape and it had the little lid that popped up. So I had one of those in like the 1970s brown 
with, you know, these big buttons on it with little dots. So I had to listen to books on tape for people that were deaf. And the people at that point in time that were reading these things were very, un- very, very unenthusiastic about what they were doing. So it was kind of like, so Sam opened the door and the door creaked. And then Sam walked in the door and he engaged with Alice. And then Alice said, hi, Sam. And then Sam said, hi, Alice. And you're like, can you get to the fucking point already? Like, Jesus, what is going on here, man? Can you? Hey, Sam, what's up, dude? How you doing? Like, can you do anything that would make me feel better about listening to you any further? Because you're I, I can't do it. I, I, so a lot of times I would just sit there and have to listen to this stuff. And it was like just the worst time ever because there wasn't any other distractions you could have. You couldn't play on your phone. We didn't have cell phones. You know, you can only pick your toes so much where you're like, this dude just sucks. <laughs> like that's, so you're what, you know, it, it like books on tape now or they're read by actors who were like, you know, let me really show them what I got. These people were like, ah, it's a government check. I, it doesn't matter. Just get it done. You talked about Lyme disease, it, and from my understanding, it's like uh, you t- people typically get it from being bit by a tick out hiking, mm-hmm. something like that. You said you had it more than once. I thought once you had it, you had it for life. You do. Uh, so I was in remission, and then it, and then I had a flare up. Um, and the funny thing is, is I got it. I'm not sure where I got it from or how I got it um, because I'm not a hiker. Um, I don't really go out. I mean, when I was younger, we would go out in the woods all the time and there are ticks that would bite you and stuff like that being on the East coast, but I didn't have any reaction to it at all. Um, and then many, many years later, when I was dealing with a whole bunch of mental trauma, um, that's when it kind of came in. And apparently it's one of those things where you can have it and your immune system will keep it in check for a long time. You'll go through a lot of stress. Stress will reduce your immune system. And then it kind of unleashes this beast that was behind the curtain. And in my case, that's kind of what happened to me is my take on it. Uh, but I really don't know. I didn't have any of the traditional, you know, bullet uh, bullseye from a bite or any of that stuff. Um, so I'm more of a city mouse than a country mouse. So I wasn't really sure where I got it from. But it ended up, uh, you know, being an incredibly traumatic experience for me. Uh, the first go around, the second go around, I kind of knew what to do. So it wasn't as bad. So what is the experience like? What what happens uh, to you physically? Like, can we, would, will we physically be able to tell and what's happening internally? Oh, yeah. And what do you do to cope and deal with it? Well, it was interesting. So this happened, um, oh God, I don't even know how many years ago now. This happened a while ago and I would, uh, it affected me in, in pretty much every way that there was. The treatment for it was very difficult. Um, I was taking upwards of 20 plus pills a day, uh, antibiotics, probiotics to deal with the antibiotics, um, just all kinds of shit. And then when things weren't progressing to, to kind of get it into check, we went from pills to IV. So I ended up doing 33 IV injections of uh, like a full, you know, IV drip bag. And uh, because of all of that, um, uh, Lyme disease is a disease of inflammation in a lot of cases. So I had to go on a special diet where I didn't do anything gluten. I I tried to do no sugar and no dairy. I say try on that part because that's really hard to do. So I did extremely reduced. 
I ended up losing all kinds of weight, got down to like 135 pounds. Um, it affected my nervous system. So I had this like, uh, like a twitching hand all the time. Um, and then I would have, um, brain fog in a big, big way. Uh, and then I would have times where I would mentally just completely black out, um, and just couldn't attach to any kind of memory was just in the moment. Uh, but couldn't tell you what I was doing, where I was, anything like that. And I continued to do stand-up during this entire time. So it forced me physically, uh, and I'll just, I'll just tie it to stand-up since that's our, uh, that's one of our connections. Uh, it made me change things in my stand-up career because I would no longer hold the microphone. I would leave it in the stand because I didn't want my hand to shake and that to be a distraction. I started doing crowd work because I couldn't remember my bits. I couldn't remember what I wanted to say next. Um, I remember vividly one time I was at a show and I, you know, I told the promoter, Hey man, listen, um, you know, I don't know if you know this, I got this Lyme disease. I'm in treatment for it right now, but it's kind of messing me up. So if I go on stage and just black out and just go blank for a while, just yell out one of my favorite jokes that one of your favorites of my jokes and I'll start telling it. So that had happened a few times. And then I said, you know what? I don't want to have somebody else having to control what I'm saying. So I just started doing crowd work and ended up getting really, really, really good at it because I didn't have any other tools and I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to stop doing something that, you know, I'd love to do. Um, even though I wasn't really able to do it at the level that I wanted to. Wow. I mean, what a way to turn your burden into a blessing, right? Because it's almost like when basketball players train with one arm tied behind their back. Mm -hmm. And then when they get that arm free, now they're even more uh, lethal, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, once the, the symptoms of Lyme disease subsided, I'm sure now you got your bits and you got this new skill of being able to do crowd work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was difficult because one of the other things was my hand would twitch. But so would my head. So I had this constant, like, um, uh, you know, what looked like a nervous uh, twitch, but it was just constantly my head was moving the entire time. Um, uh, I don't know, like almost like convulsions, almost not so large, but on a much smaller scale. And then there were times, boy, you want to talk about locking yourself in a room. There were times where I would have something called a body uh, body tremor, which is like a conscientious seizure. So you're having this seizure, but you're totally awake. And it's just pulses. For me, it was just like pulses of energy just going through your body. And it just makes your muscles do things. So that was my biggest fear. Like, yo, whatever I do, I can't have that happen in public. That, that would freak people out. I'm not going into a hospital. Yeah, especially if it happens like while you're driving, right? Like oh, yeah. Operating some type of heavy machinery. Like that has to be terrifying and anxiety oh, yeah. producing. Yeah, I've had uh, to pull over a few times doing that one. So with this Lyme disease, uh, mm -hmm. going on a low in inflammation diet, no sugar, no dairy. Is that something that you're still adhering to? I mean, now you have yeah. an ice cream shop. So yeah, that's, hell no. that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, I could, you could say I swung back onto the other side of things. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I could add to it is like a bread shop as well. <laughs> Why ice cream shop? What, 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 which I mean, Everybody so, loves, not everybody loves ice cream, but I mean, that's a very American thing. Yeah. So I got into it because my parents uh, got into the ice cream business after they retired to supplement their income. 
Um, longest story shorter, uh, and not short, but shorter. Um, they retired. 08 happened. Uh, there was a huge recession. They got hit by that recession and lost some of their retirement money. Uh, my dad, being a workaholic, was like, well, I'll just go back to work. But they had hired three people to do his one job and couldn't fire three people to bring him back on. So he uh, decided to look into something that would be a supplemental business. He was always very interested in this donut shop that we used to see in um, Ocean City, New Jersey, where this guy showed up at six in the morning, left by 12, had tons of business, went on and lived his life. So my dad was always enthralled by this guy. Like, that guy's got it figured out. He goes to the beach every day, makes money, goes home, enjoys his family, comes back early in the morning. So he wanted to find a business that was something like that, and it had to be recession-proof. So a lot of recession-proof businesses are guns, tobacco, alcohol, and my family wasn't really into any of those things on a big scale. But there was also comfort foods. And in the small town where they lived in, there was one ice cream shop. My dad was always a person that loved ice cream. So he decided, well, what I'll do is I'll go down, I'll talk to this guy, see if he's got any space in his restaurant I can, I can rent. So they rented a 300-square-foot place. And my dad decided, well, I'm going to go run around and taste a bunch of ice cream because then I can write off ice cream. And then I'll find the best stuff and I'll bring it back to the town that I live in. And that way my town will have better ice cream. I like better ice cream. I'm assuming other people would too. Um, so that's how they got into it 13 years ago. And then my dad got a little bold and decided to, uh, well, you know, let me try making some ice cream. Let me see what it could do. So he ended up um, inventing uh, this mint chip recipe that took off. Um, and my dad being very old school, he, you know, he wasn't the type of guy to be like, oh, well, if I have one machine that's doing well, I'll just get this bigger machine and it'll make my life easier. His way of dealing things was, well, I'll just buy more of this one small machine. So he went from a Cuisinart machine, uh, the same one you can buy on Amazon for like 100 bucks. And he went, all right, well, I'll double my capacity and now I'll buy two. Well, he went from two to four, four to eight. And eventually my mom said, you got to get these noisy machines at the fuck out of my house. And then my dad was like, okay, you got a deal. Uh, and then he took over her studio down in the basement and converted that into an ice cream uh, facility where he finally bought the big machine. So she went from eight uh, very loud machines to one extremely loud machine. <laughs> and that's how I, I, uh, it took off. And that's where I kind of got into the business. They, they said, Hey, you know, we know you're tired of making other people a bunch of money and not being rewarded for it. We know you want to open up your own business. We have these recipes. We have this knowledge. This might be something you want to get into. And what's your biggest seller? What flavor? Ooh, I don't know. Right now I got several. Um, so right now the mint chips always one of the better sellers. Uh, the chocolate covered strawberry is a big seller right now. The Reese's peanut butter cup cookie dough. I'm having a hard time keeping in stock. Uh, and I made this, uh, two other ones that have alcohol in it. So one is screwball whiskey and pe and burnt peanut butter cookies. And then the other one is a Kahlua espresso martini that has a tiramisu ribbon, uh, in the ice cream. Well, you know, congratulations, man. I mean, your journey has been remarkable. And so, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is, uh, are you reading books now? Oh, God, no. 
<laughs> I still don't listen to books on tape either. <laughs> I would say that I was traumatically scarred. And I have friends that are like, oh, man, it's so much better now. I'm like, cool, dude. You enjoy that, man. I'm good. <laughs> so I, I listen to it. podcasts and I listen to uh, uh, sports talk radio most of the time. And, you know, I don't even really listen to music all that much anymore. To me, it's just like just kind of listen to some of the things that you enjoy that fill your brain with stuff. And oddly enough, as opposed to like one of the things I it's weird, I don't know why, but I don't really enjoy listening to a lot of other people's comedy because I'm so afraid of someone ever calling me a hack if I come up with my own original, you know, idea. So I just kind of go, all right, you know what? You can't say I'd listen to you because I don't listen to anybody. Uh, what are you looking forward to, Dave? Boy, I, I got to be honest. I'm looking forward to uh, getting through summer, completing my first year in business, um, expanding my business uh, freezer capacity so that I can finally get uh, a day or two off. Fantastic. And the last question I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life mm -hmm. before you kill yourself what would you say to them dave call somebody you love um that's number one uh you don't have to you know reach out there's there's no reason to have to depression can be a monstrously huge bag and you don't have to carry it all yourself um your friends will be able to help out in some capacity or another and before you ever think of taking any kind of action, don't think about the pain that you're in. Think about the pain it would cause others. And then realize that you have the control to change that by not taking your own life. So I would say reach out to somebody that you love, feel that love, explain to them, hey, I'm having a hard time because they're going to want to help you out. It's, an, it's intrinsic in the... Uh, it's just inherent in the relationship. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the 1-800. Uh-oh, they changed it to 988. That's right, 988. If you're, if you're international, if you're global, uh, there are other international phone numbers in the show notes. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks a lot, Dave. Love you, my man. Love you, brother.